This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 29th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, the new Biden administration announced on day one it has plans to recalculate the social cost of carbon. It's basically a way of estimating the economic toll of greenhouse gases produced today on future generations. Staff writer Paul Vusen discusses why this value is so important and how it will be determined. Next up, researcher Allison Barker talks about the sounds of naked mole rats. You may already know that these amazing mammals are pain and cancer resistant, but did you know that they make these little chirps to identify themselves as members of their colony? As a new administration comes into power in the United States, we're seeing some swift changes in certain scientific areas. Rejoining the WHO, the Paris Climate Agreement, a new director of the Office of Science and Technology. And among these early moves, the Biden administration has also asked for a recalibration of the social cost of carbon. Staff writer Paul Vusen is here to talk about this change. Hi, Paul. Hello. Hi. So this was announced on the first day Biden was in office that the cost of carbon to future generations needs to be looked at. What exactly are they counting here? This gets pretty wonky pretty quickly, but the social cost of carbon essentially is used in all the big regulatory decisions that the government makes. And it essentially takes the economic damage, which really reflects the damage to our you know everyday lives that will come with a policy that allows more greenhouse gas emissions or less greenhouse gas emissions now, runs it out through the future, and then comes back to put a number on what those emissions are going to cost us. So it's kind of like a price on carbon, except it's not and it's not a carbon tax or anything. What was happening under Trump? So Obama had put this all together under his administration. When Trump came in, they, they made two small changes that drastically decreased the uh, number. So first, instead of reflecting the damage done to the entire world, it looked only at the damage done to the United States in the future. And it increased something that's called the discount rate, which is essentially how we value future generations and what we can do with when we get wealthier. It's a kind of a combination of those two. If you increase that enough, you essentially you know go far enough in the future, you don't care what happens. There was basically a devaluing 
down to a dollar per ton of carbon CO2 in some circumstances. Before we get to what it's going to be potentially in the next uh, four years, how will this carbon cost be calculated now? What are they going to take into account? What are these numbers that we just mentioned about discount and how far into the future we look? How are those going to be calculated? They've already said they'll go back to the global damage that the Obama administration used. And they have two time spans here. First, a a rapid 30-day revision and then a year-long final update. That rapid 30-day revision, they could either go back to the Obama-era policies or they could even set the discount rate lower, which many economists think is appropriate. And New York State actually did in their own calculation late last year. What might the value be then for this short calculation, the 30-day one or the year-long one? How would it compare to that $1 amount that you talked about? Possibly within 30 days, it could go up to $125 per ton. (laughs) The discount rate is a powerful thing on its own. So that's moving from a 3% to a 2% rate. Everything else staying the same, including global damages. There are a lot more changes that could happen for that year-long update that could reflect a lot of new science that's and new methods are now going into the models that form this number. What are people looking at with respect to climate? Let's take that first. How might that be different than what was considered under the Obama administration? Yeah, so these economic models called integrated assessment models that you're used to produce all this, you know, they have lots of knobs. The climate models, like these very simple climate models that are built into them, didn't really reflect the best science, particularly they warmed too slow compared to more complex models. Now, there have been a few new simple models developed by climate scientists that more accurately reflect that consensus. So those can probably be used. And one big change is there's been a group of economists and climate scientists who have been putting together these econometric estimates of the future damage of climate change. Damage from climate change is pile uncertainty onto uncertainty. They take these massive data sets from as many countries as they could find globally and look at short-term variations over a couple of decades or shifting weather, use that to try and extrapolate out into the future to some extent. So there's more data informing these policies, even if they are ultimately uncertain. This value, if it goes up by 100 times or possibly more, what kinds of regulations is this going to impact? When is this taken into consideration? Can you give us some examples? So any of your clean air regulations determining the future of power, electricity in the country, you know, that's all regulated by EPA. That will all factor in this cost of carbon, the efficiency standards for a refrigerator, for cars, all these things that the government oversees. It often makes what is already a compelling case even more compelling. It rarely flips it from, you know, negative to positive in that kind of cost-benefit analysis. So it's a tricky standard because you can see with a number how much it moves, how much do you rely on that to support your decision making? It's a complex dance, but knowing that this value is out there will make these decisions even stronger and it has a lot of validity and I think the courts would respect it. So why do you think that this is something that the administration decided to do day one? Is it because there's probably a lot of new regulation on the horizon and this needs to be there to buttress? Yeah, I mean, there's a a lot of work to be done. And I think the 30 day caught a lot of people by surprise. But this will, you know, this probably is needed to start getting to work. A lot of these regulations that they'll be looking at that the Trump administration did, redid the Obama administration ones. And so 
they can't just repeal them. They have to rework through the rulemaking process. And to get that started, you need this higher cost of carbon, probably. Okay. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you. Paul Vusen is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to this article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Could naked mole rats be the new model for language learning? Stick around for the sound of naked mole rats chirping at each other and my interview with researcher Allison Barker about what these sounds mean. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Naked mole rats are famous for a few reasons. First, they have some striking biological features like being resistant to cancer and insensitive to certain types of pain. They're also eusocial mammals. They live in colonies with a queen. Now, in a science paper this week, Allison Barker and colleagues show that naked mole rats learn songs from each other. Allison is here to talk about how they figured this out and why it's so special. Hi, Allison. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me here today. Oh, sure. I love talking about these guys. I find this so amazing. Researchers have been studying these rodents for a long time. And what they've not noticed, these interesting sounds that they make. We have an example that you sent here of a courtship song. Let's play that. So why hasn't this been observed before? Actually, it has been observed, but it's always been kind of noted as an interesting side feature because really there's so many cool things that these animals do. Researchers have often focused on these other features and they thought, well, naked mole rats are kind of weird in general. And the fact that they're chirping a lot probably means something, but no one really took a look at it until we came along. The focus here in this work is on what you call soft chirps. And these are typically exchanged when two mole rats meet in the dark in a tunnel. Here's an example of that type of exchange. Let's play that now. And what you figured out was that these are colony specific, that they basically serve as identifying calls. How did you figure out that these were specific to a colony? We took advantage of some new technology that's been developed over the last few years, the type of computer analysis called machine learning. And this allowed us two advantages. So we were able to record a lot of soft chirps, so more than 30,000 of them. And we were able to streamline the analysis of the soft chirps. And it's not so common to have naked mole rats. I was lucky to work in a lab in Berlin where there were several colonies. And we also had collaborators where we had access to naked mole rats that are in South Africa. So we've played a few samples of these sounds, courtship songs, soft chirps, and obviously they're audible to the human ear. But can you tell which type of song we're listening to? Or can you tell you like as an expert on listening to this stuff, can you tell a colony dialect from a different one? I can definitely tell some of them. I think with a little bit of practice, actually, I'm pretty confident anyone can do this. I've had a lot of practice with them. I'm embarrassed to admit, but I can certainly recognize certain individuals. Wow. I think that brings up a good point, though. So with this machine learning, you're able to play a sound 
the machine learning can place it into a certain colony. But how do we know that this is what the mole rats are recognizing? I mean, couldn't they just be recognizing their cousin's voice or the smell of someone from their colony? That's a really good point. And I just want to maybe touch upon machine learning again, if I can, for a second, because I know that sounds like kind of a big fancy term. But (laughs) actually, I mean, really what we're just doing is we're giving this machine, which is a computer program, a lot of information, and it sets up its own sort of rules about how to classify this information. And we also give it an answer key so then it can check how accurate it is. And that was, of course, a really important thing that we needed to test in the paper was, okay, the machine can do it, but that doesn't mean that the naked mole rat can do it. We actually just tested that in a very simple way. We had thousands of these recordings of these soft chirps, and we chose the soft chirps because they're very common and they're also very simple acoustically. And so we were able to place a single mole rat in a behavioral chamber where we could play sounds that we had recorded from the colony. And they were pretty good at recognizing individuals that they know in the colony. And the way that we could assess this was that they actually respond to the recording. The mole rats will sort of preferentially respond actually to individuals from their colony. But of course, they might just be recognizing someone that they know within the colony. So to test this, we made sort of like a robot mole rat We basically took the average sound statistics from each colony and made a fake sound. When we fed that back into our our machine, it would predict that the fake mole rat was speaking that dialect, but it didn't overlap with any individual that existed in the colony. And when we tested animals with that procedure, we found that they still preferentially responded, so chirping back to the playback. And so this was really strong evidence for us that actually the mole rats were somehow able to extrapolate a colony dialect or some features of a dialect and that they were able to recognize that. Well, let's turn to where this dialect comes from. One of the important findings in the study is that these are learned. How were you able to show that this learning was happening? We managed to cross-foster pups. Naked mole rats are kind of rare breeders. So as you mentioned before, there's only one breeding female in the colony, and that's the queen. And so she gives birth maybe four times a year if we're lucky. So we actually got very lucky and that we had several colonies that gave birth within the same two-week period. And so we were able to transfer pups from one colony to another. And we were able to do this in three separate experiments. And we were able to track the pups as they grew up in the new environment. We would predict that if the dialect is something that's completely genetically determined, then the birth colony dialect would appear no matter what environment you were raised in. So after about six months of living in their foster colonies, we recorded lots of soft chirps from the adopted pups. And we were able to, again, use this classification algorithm we had developed and ask the machine, which language is this mole rat speaking? And so we found three out of three times. So across the board, the dialect that the mole rat was speaking was the one of its adoptive colony. So they seem to be able to, at some point in their early life, learn something about the new environment, the new acoustic environment, and they're able to use that to kind of fit in. Why is it important that these mole rats know their local lingo? You know, you say in the paper, these critters are kind of xenophobic. 
they're willing to kill interlopers. So is this song kind of protecting the ones that do live in the colony from execution? I think in general, being part of a social group is very important for a lot of species. And I think this is especially important for the naked mole rats because they live in an an environment which is often kind of harsh. And one of the reasons they've been able to survive is that they've developed these really strong social bonds. So implicit in that is the need to understand who belongs to your group and who doesn't. And I think when you have a very large group, in the wild, colonies can be up to 300 individuals. So that's quite an organizational task. And so, yeah, we really think that having a vocal cue is something that can help unify the colony. And that if you're not performing, probably in many ways, if you're also not speaking the correct language, then that may be a signal that you're going to be punished or perhaps yeah, executed. We talk about the fact that these fostered pups learn from their environment. They're basically learning songs from the mole rats around them. Why is this such an important find? Well, I think it really expands our understanding of how vocal communication evolved and how it's used in the animal kingdom. Obviously, humans are incredibly good vocal learners and there's been some amazing work studying birdsong, for example, and they've shown that birds can learn very exquisitely to produce new types of sounds and primates can learn to associate different sounds with different environmental cues. But there really hasn't been a rodent that's been shown to do this. So I think that's what I find kind of remarkable about this. It also, to me, makes a lot of sense because when you look at the evolution of cooperation, you need to have a high level of communication for that to succeed. It's Maybe a bit surprising that the naked mole rats chose vocal communication. We also thought that there might be an olfactory cue or a visual cue. Vision was kind of easily excluded because they're basically blind and they live underground. They're not going to do dances like bees. And apparently they're not doing pheromones like some other invertebrates. That's true. I mean, I would really love if they were doing dances. Um, (laughs) But I think instead we have, they're doing symphonies perhaps. So we have um, some mole rat songs. It really kind of makes us take another look at the natural world. And, you know, you can realize like how much uh, diversity is out there and how often evolution has sort of evolved similar solutions to problems. Researchers have been using songbirds uh, sometimes to understand things like language acquisition, the evolution of learn- like vocal learning, and maybe mole rats are going to be another place where that could be studied. But right now, you can't say for sure that they're doing the same thing. What don't we know? What more do we need to learn about naked mole rats to make these comparisons? Yeah, so I think I should maybe just clarify a bit. Uh, you know, you kind of mentioned at the beginning that mole rats are learning songs, and we don't actually know that they're learning songs. We know that they're learning this one specific greeting call. It's likely that there's probably some cultural transmission of these more complex vocalizations. But yeah, I just want to emphasize that we definitely haven't shown that here. I think you bring up a really interesting point about songbirds. And one of the things that's so remarkable about them is their ability kind of on a motor level to manipulate sounds and to learn new motor patterns. This has been classically divided into two types of learning. So there's the production learners, which are the songbirds, and then there's a the kind of usage learners, which are more like the non-human primates. And so they often will have like sort of a large vocal repertoire, but they don't actually modify the sounds very much. What they do is they learn sort of contextual associations. 
there was a really great study with them. Vervets, a type of monkey, and they show that they have a different sound for different predators and they can learn that. I think what remains to be seen is where the naked mole rat falls on that spectrum. Are they really good at this usage learning? So are they able to associate specific sounds with specific activities? Or are they actually able to change through sort of detailed motor control different aspects of their vocalizations? And I think the evidence with the pups suggests that that may be possible, which is really intriguing. But we certainly need to look at some of these other vocalizations, like you played at the beginning, these courtship songs, and see how they're transmitted across generations. I think that we're really in a good position to do this because we've really only scratched the surface with the naked mole rat vocabulary. As we talked before, they are a little, you know, they're not friendly to outsiders, but are naked mole rats friendly to people? Do you have to handle them? Okay, I'm glad that you asked this because I was a bit afraid that this was going to get pitched as, oh, these aggressive xenophobic (laughs) animals. And I really wanted us to say, well, but they're so cooperative and that's the lesson. We should all learn to communicate better. Yeah, they're incredibly gentle. I really like handling them. I know some people are put off by the teeth, but they're actually very cuddly. They sleep together in a giant pile. If you handle them, they also get very cuddly. I think they're very, yeah, they like humans. That's cool. As I mentioned, there's a queen. She's the one who has the babies in the colony. What's her role in this dialect? Does she set the tone for the colony too? We think so. Actually, we're not exactly sure how she does it, but we did find that when the queen is lost, and so this happened, we had one colony that we were tracking for more than a year, and actually it was quite rare, but the queen died twice. And because of this upheaval within the colony, we were able to record the soft chirp dialect in periods of stable rule and also in periods of anarchy. And what was really interesting is that the dialect completely fell apart when the queen was gone. We're not entirely sure how she's controlling the dialect. We did test to see if everyone in the colony was trying to match the queen. And that actually seems to not be the case. So she is somehow controlling that everyone is conforming to a dialect, but she doesn't seem to care that it's actually her, like her soft chirp that they're matching. But so the adults were able to learn a new soft chirp when the new queen was established? Yeah, I'm not sure if they were, if we could really say that it was learning or if they're more able to, I mean, I guess there's some sort of template matching because they're all converging and they're all speaking a similar, maybe we just say there's some sort of vocal filtering in place, but they're able to control themselves vocally when the queen is there. Individual variability increased a lot when the queen was gone. Normally, the only individual that has an incredible amount of variability is the breeding male. And so we actually kind of think that he's allowed to be a bit more free because he's the one that has to entertain the queen with his singing. You know, so she's somehow really allowing him to be a bit more vocally free. And when she's gone, everything falls apart. All right, Allison, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Allison Barker is a postdoctoral researcher at the Max Delbrück Center in Berlin, Germany. You can find a link to the paper we discussed and a related insight at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. 
On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe on the site or anywhere you get your podcast. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.